here in the Maryland Hall of Records, St. John's College campus, and different things, little bit here, little card file here. Phoebe Jacobson, a master archivist, helped me find things. And then the area widened. I was in New England at Peabody Museum, Widener at Harvard, various other places, moving around, and then I was crossing the ocean again. There was a one period when I made three round trips over the ocean in a 10-day period. It never occurred to me to telephone or to cable. I had to go. Somebody might miss it. You had to go. And it was pulling together a shred here, a little bit there, of about that ship, to recreate the ship which brought Kunta Kinte and which symbolized the ship or the ships which had brought so many, many, many out of Africa over such a long period of time. Finally, I got together. Her name was Lord Ligonier. She was named for a British field marshal. She was built in this country in 1765, probably in New Hampshire. She came out of Maryland and sailed with a cargo of rum, a skeletal crew of 16, her captain, Captain Thomas Davies, D-A-V-I-E-S, and she sailed to Graves in England. She's a brand new ship, maiden voyage. They sold the rum, used the proceeds to buy the slaving hardware and the foodstuffs they would need and to put on a full crew, 36. And she sailed out of Gravesend, and she was moving on up now on her way. I could read the captain's mind. He had a brand new ship. He'd been entrusted with command. He wanted to make the quickest possible trip to get the best possible cargo of slaves and get back to look good to the people who had entrusted him with such a command. And he's moving on up the channel and as he moved on up, the weather began to grow bad. I was tracking her. There were different places I could get the records of. One thing about England, it gave us the greatest system of civil service. One thing about civil servants is they're always writing something. And there are records on in. And the records would let me track her. She was making pretty good time. She was doing about 5.2 knots. I could see her in my mind's eye. She was of ship rig. Her timbers were hackmatack cedar. Her planking was loblolly pine. The flax in her sails was grown in New Jersey. The nails that held her together were not really nails as we know them, but they were called trunnel tree nails, dowel pegs of black locust split in the top with a wedge of white oak, and it will outlast an iron fastening. And she was moving on up that coast, and she was doing good, and then I came upon the thing that, for God's sake, she dropped the anchor. And I nearly had a fit. Why on earth would he drop the anchor? I knew the man was trying to make a good, fast trip. And it threw me into a dither. Why did she stop? And I begin to think now that ships then had no engines. All ships were sail ships. So if I was to know why she stopped as well as why she went, what I had to know was more than I knew about weather. So I dropped everything. I found out the British Meteorological Headquarters is in a city called Bracknell, England. And I got on a train, went over there. I remember it was a Thursday afternoon. 
you get off the train, there's a little rise, then a high iron wall and a big gate. And I got in through that gate about half an hour before they closed. And I remember rushing in there and telling these people, look, I have got to have this weather for the spring, summer, 1766. And they looked at me as if I was crazy. And I just couldn't understand why did not they have what I had to have. There was no question but what I had to have it. And I went back to London that night as deep in despair as I had been up to that point. When I got back to the hotel, I got a hold of the little bellman. They say a hotel bellman can get you anything. And this, I don't drink much, but this time I told this fellow I had a have a bottle of, I didn't care what. He got me a bottle of that Puerto Rican rum that looks like molasses. I don't know where he got it from. And by morning it was gone. Well, it was three days before I was functional again. And it was a good thing. I felt as if I was a total failure if I couldn't find uh, what I had to know, why did that ship stop? And then I got to thinking about something I guess Linus Blanket for me, kind of, is grandma. Long gone she is, but whenever I get in any strain, my mind goes back to my grandma. I'm very close to anybody's grandma because it symbolized my own. And when I got to thinking about grandma in this little hotel, then I got to thinking about Henning, the town in which we lived, and then about how our town was structured around its church and its school. All little southern towns are. And I got to thinking about something about church in particular was that among our congregation at New Hope CME Church was a lady named Sister Will Ada Curry. And everybody in Henning knew that Sister Will Ada was the best prayer in town. There was no question. After church, every Sunday when I grew up, I don't know how this thing started, but it grew up with me. Sister Will Ada always wore a dress to church that had two big pockets, one on either side. And after church, out in the churchyard, people moving around as they do, rather in the spirit that people today will go drop a coin in a fountain for good luck or something. With Sister Will Ada, people would sort of sidle up by her, and all they do is make certain she saw who they were, and they drop a nickel in one of these pockets. And the general feeling about it was that meant you would be included in her general weekly prayer, and it couldn't hurt, you know. Now, if somebody had a particular problem, they would let her see it was a dime and drop in there. <laughs> and, and if it was something catastrophic, you'd give her a quarter, and that meant you had a pipeline, sort of. Well, I got to thinking about that, laying up in this little room in a hotel in London. And I knew it was crazy, and yet everything else was crazy, it seemed. And it seemed hopeless. And I got on the phone. It is an experience to hear an international operator going through, getting through to the United States in the first place, information, getting Henning, Tennessee, and finally getting the phone number of Will Ada Curry. I knew she was still there, hadn't seen her in so long. Finally, she's on the phone. We are on the phone. It didn't take very long for me to establish who I was. Of course, she knew me as soon as I got straight which young and I was. Then 
she was confused about, she wasn't quite sure what London was, but she knew it was somewhere across the water. We got that settled. And then I recalled what she used to do, and she said, yes, and I still does that. And then I told her, I said, Sister Will Ada, I'm over here, and I need a big prayer. Honey, I mean, I need a big prayer. <laughs> and so she listened, and then I told her, I said, Sister Will Ada, when we get done, I'm going to send you $100. And she never blinked. She said, son, it sure is good talking with you, but you hang up because I'm going to start right now. And, <laughs> I don't know exactly what she prayed, but I'll tell you what happened. An idea came to me. I got to thinking that I needed to get any kind of valid weather data that I could document between April and September 1766 in that strip of ocean between the English Channel and the Gambia River. I went and got me a big <coughs> meteorological chart, figured just mark that strip of ocean that any ship sailing that particular destination would have to go through. And now I begin to get on to trains and go to every city in England that in the 1760s had been a major seaport, Liverpool, Hull, the others. And when I'd get off the train, I'd go in those cities to everything that looked like a library. This was when I began to strike up what I like to think of now as a love affair with librarians. I discovered something about librarians that most people, I think, take librarians pretty much for granted take libraries themselves pretty much for granted, but I found out that if you can excite a librarian, if you can make a librarian share your passion for something you've got to find, they can turn detective and do things that neither you nor they would normally think. Once I could get them to understand what I was trying to do, librarians got really excited about what I was trying, and they sent me to places which are now like a blur in the memory, old warehouses old shipping record places, homes of seafaring people who had collected logs of ships, all kinds of places. And I would go and I always I was looking for one thing, the log of any ship of any kind, which at any time between April and September 1766 had been in my strip of ocean. And I knew one thing, having been an old sailor and having done a lot of work in old ship records, that in the days of sailing ship, every time they change the watch on a ship, they record the longitude and the latitude and the weather. And whenever I'd find in any of these logs a ship that had been in my strip of ocean in those months, I would pluck out the longitude, latitude, and with my little stuff I could pinpoint where she was when she made a specific weather reading. And I could reduce that weather reading to the symbols. And in that way, Three weeks about, I had 411 weather readings scattered over that strip of ocean. I went back to Bracknell and got two lieutenant commanders, Royal Navy, and showed it to them, and they became engrossed with it. It was like a double cross-stick puzzle. And then they went in with colleagues, and with the modern weather prognosis methods, they were able to recreate the weather in which the Lord Ligonier had sailed. 
I found that the reason she had dropped anchor was a very valid one. She had been coming out of Gravesend and the weather had been getting worse on her and she came to that point where you have to make a starboard turn and where it needed east in the wind to make that turn safely. But the wind had shifted to southwest. She had to drop the anchor because if she hadn't, she would have been in danger of drifting over into an area called the Goodwin Sands. And she laid in there waiting for the wind to shift. And she waited and waited until finally, it was July 5th, 1766. She was in eight fathoms of water. It was a Tuesday morning. The Miller Bar reading was 1010. The weather was a drizzle becoming fair and the wind shifted east northeast. And that was the day she ran up the sails. She went on down now past Shakespeare Cliff, past the White Cliffs of Dover, Dungeness, Bealey Head, down to Lizard's Head, and into the open sea. She went southeastly across the Bay of Biscay, down to the Cape Verdes, the Canaries, and then she made the bend upwards and came up to the Gambia River. She would spend the next 10 months in that Gambia River slaving. At the end of 10 months, she had a cargo, 3,265 elephant's teeth, as they called ivory tusks, 3,700 pounds of beeswax, 800 pounds of raw cotton, 32 ounces of gold, 140 Africans. And with that cargo, she set sail July 5th, 1767. It was a Sunday. She sailed directly to Annapolis. She arrived in Annapolis, and when she got in there, I knew of her coming in there because I went now to Annapolis, and I went into one set of records that you can generally find back to the time of Christ, and that's tax records, to find out, <laughs> to find out what had she declared for tax when she got in there. The captain was very honest. He declared everything that he declared on leaving the fort in the Gambia River, the James Fort, whose ruins I had seen, he now declared ladies and gentlemen i'm going to stop it right here i hope you're in you're enjoying yourself by listening i am enjoying and learning by listening and i will conclude this in one moment